This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This is Annie Grace, and I'm so excited today to be here with um, Michael. Now, Michael is a sleep practitioner, a sleep scientist, a sleep expert, and this is going to bring so much knowledge. And one of the biggest the biggest questions I get, especially for people going through the alcohol experiment or through people, you know, trying to change their relationship with alcohol is like, well, how do I sleep? How do I sleep without it? And I know for me, Michael, I remember that for a very long time, I don't remember falling asleep. I remember drinking, not necessarily until I was like passed out, but drinking until it was like, it was almost like it was like a, my consciousness went like this and then boom. And I remember after I stopped drinking, being like, wow, you can be awake until you're asleep. Like you can be fully conscious and aware until you're asleep. Like that, that hadn't happened. I'd always had this like kind of like slow dimming effect until lights out. And, and then I realized too, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that that moment of falling asleep is actually one of the coolest moments of your entire day because you enter this like amazing kind of blissful, like liminal space. And it's, it's just really nice. In that moment, when I started to get into meditation, I realized that, that that feeling is actually the feeling that, you know, you're kind of looking for in meditation. So I had been robbing myself of this with alcohol. And that was a huge moment of awareness. So I'm so, I'm so thankful for you for taking your time out of your day to come and talk to us about things all sleep. And um, so I'd love for you to get into it. But before we do, I, I hear you're even taking a personal challenge, which I'd love to hear about that as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. It sort of stumbled into it because I think it was June last year, and uh, my wife was overseas for about three weeks. So I was looking after the kids and you know doing my job, and she was seeing her uh, uh, grandmother uh, for her ninetieth. And it was such a busy time, and um, two weeks had passed, and I was like, "Hang on, I haven't drunk alcohol." I think the last thing I had was a red wine with uh, lasagna. And anyway, um, in Australia, we went from you know pretty much June to dry July, and I thought, oh, "I wonder if I can do dry July." And, and I did it and then I was like, I wonder if I can do August. So I did it and then um, September, October was coming up and then I was going overseas and that's a really challenging time, I think, when traveling. And um, I recall that uh, we went out with friends to Oktoberfest and they brought us out to Oktoberfest. And, you know, they're saying, oh, no, you must have a drink when you come to the Wiesn and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so we debated and we sort of met halfway and I had a Rattler, which is half beer, half lemonade. And I remember waking up the next day going, that wasn't, you know, a compromise, you know, I really sort of gave away this thing and I've got to start again. So I, I was really determined and I was like, I'm going to do this for 365 days. And, um, and I managed to do that this year. And it was an interesting social experiment in some ways, uh, having conversations when you're going out to lunch or dinner and people are sort of curious about it and and then I found myself starting to really talk about the research because you know my background is sleep research I started looking at the alcohol research as well um, and those some people start to get a bit defensive so it was interesting just to sort of have a conversation but not sort of um, inform them too much about it let them come to their sort of own decisions so at this point I'm still going and Pretty much, I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm going to see if I can do, you know, a second year. I'm just quitting. I'm just saying that now. Oh, that's amazing! So exciting! It's amazing. Yes. Um, so it's so good to just be free of all that BS. And it's so amazing, as you say, to to look around society and be like, wow, like it's it's not 
it's not that it's normalized, it's that it's expected. And that's just so fascinating, right? Like, how did that happen? But anyway, that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> so let's dive into the sleep. I'm so excited that you're gonna share your knowledge with us about all things sleep. And specifically, you are an expert on alcohol and sleep, which is just super exciting. So I don't know where you wanna start, but just hand it over to you. Yeah, well, um, I did see that uh, podcast that you did with William Porter and uh, I'm not as eloquent as him. I mean, I could listen to him all day, you know, sitting by a fire. He's just fantastic. And I remember um, William talking about, you know, what happens to our sleep when you have alcohol? What happens to our sleep when you don't have alcohol? And then giving some tips. And, I've, and I guess I've heard uh, other people sort of talk about what can you do? And I've gone, oh, you could actually do a lot more about that. So I think that's the reason for me trying to connect with you is to sort of say, you know, from my background, I think um, your listeners could probably get a lot more from the sort of uh, expert sort of advice that we sort of uh, provide people because, you know, as background, you know, we, I've been running a sleep clinic for so long um, and seeing people week in, week out, this is my bread and butter, um, as well as doing the sleep research behind it. So I guess what I'd like to inform your listeners about is just briefly what happens when we have alcohol, what happens to our sleep, yeah, what happens amazing. when you stop having alcohol. And what sort of things can you do, especially in that first week? It's, it's almost like that first week is a real barrier. Sometimes your sleep can get quite bad and you'll then return to alcohol and you get stuck in this vicious cycle. So I sort of want to talk about what sort of things you can do in that first week so you can push through that barrier and sort of ride the wave, so to speak. That sounds incredible. Cool. So um, I guess the first thing is that, uh, as many people know, when you're having alcohol, what happens to your sleep is that you will be consuming a depressant. So basically, as you mentioned, you know, you sort of really go into this sleepy sort of state. And, you know, if you're depending upon the amount of alcohol that you have, you can actually um, sort of miss that sleepy state and just go straight into falling asleep. Um, so people would know that it's something that uh, basically reduces what we call in the sort of sleep science world arousal. So we have different states of arousal. So you can have just normal arousal like we're having right now. And then if you consume alcohol, then that decreases your arousal. And obviously when you're sleeping, then your arousal comes right down. Um, I also might talk about the opposite, which is that there's this thing called hyper arousal. In other words, we're really tuned into our environment maybe an anxious state, but we're really looking for threats in our environment. And I want to sort of come to this whole concept of what happens when you stop using alcohol uh, in terms of arousal, because I think my view of it is that it's very similar to insomnia. So the idea is that, say if you've been having alcohol for a frequent amount of time and you're almost using it as a sleep aid, and as soon as you stop using it, then your brain goes into a state of hyperarousal. It's expecting to have that alcohol in order to fall asleep. And when it doesn't get it, it goes into this hyperarousal state. So in other words, what that means for sleep is if you were usually falling asleep at 10.30, then if you suddenly stop, then the brain is going to be awake and really alert. And it means you won't be falling asleep at 10.30. Unfortunately, it means you're going to be falling asleep much later. And if you've got to do things the next day, if you've got kids to look after, if you've got to go to work or anything like that, um, you've got to get up at a certain time. So what happened is that you had a night without alcohol and yes, you slept, but you're not getting as much sleep. And so you think, okay, maybe that was just a bad night. You know, I'll get through the day. I'm still determined to do this. But unfortunately what happens is that day, so I should say night two, night three, possibly even night four, 
that hyper arousal state is still going as you're going off of alcohol. And I think when you get to sort of night three, a lot of people go, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, I obviously form this belief, which is what we would call an unhelpful belief that I need alcohol to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. But what's actually happening is a natural process. You're actually starting to go through this wave of insomnia, but as much as you are falling asleep late, say after night three, eventually that subsides and you'll start to fall asleep earlier. Um, and people don't know that. It's a similar thing that happens when people are taking, say for instance, medication, sleep medications, okay. and they're taking it on a consistent basis. And what happens is that the brain gets used to it, very similar to alcohol, but when you stop taking it, you'll go through the same sort of wave of arousal and insomnia over that first week. So as long as people are wary of that and know that they have to ride that wave, that's an important first step, but it doesn't have to be too painful. So there are some techniques that you can do to help you sort of ride that wave. Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. And then um, one of the things that, you know, when you are sleeping without alcohol, is the sleep better at least? Well, it's, it's interesting. It goes through a lot of phases um, because one concept that people might not be aware about is something called sleep pressure. So as soon as you wake up in the morning, you are starting to build up the pressure to sleep. So the later that you go to bed, the more sleepy you'll feel. And when you have something like alcohol, you've had quite poor quality sleep for quite some time. So as much as you are also going to be awake for a fair bit of time when you stop having alcohol, you're going to have a lot of pressure to sleep. Um, and one of those important ones, if we sort of talk briefly about the stages of sleep, because people are getting a bit more aware of stages of sleep now that they're wearing things like this and they're giving them feedback about REM sleep. Uh, REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep associated with dreaming, um, that has a rebound effect. So what happens is when you're drinking alcohol, alcohol will suppress REM sleep, so you won't get much REM sleep. But when you stop drinking alcohol, REM sleep comes back like you wouldn't believe. And then what happens is that people will get a heck of a lot of dreams. And so you'll see a lot more REM sleep. You'll probably get broken sleep, but I think what people say is that at least when they wake up in the morning, not feeling those sort of side effects from the alcohol the night before. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Yes. So um, I think, I guess what's important is to sort of talk about a few things that people can do during that first week to sort of cope with it. And as I'm sort of alluding to, one thing is to expect to fall asleep later. Um, you can probably go and talk to your GP prior to doing something like this. Um, they might be able to assist with um, medications that might be able to ease those sort of symptoms. But some of the natural ones uh, or the psychological ones is the ones I want to talk about. And uh, what we do in the insomnia world is that we categorize these into what we call sleep hygiene. And the other ones are called cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. So I'll talk about the sleep hygiene ones first. So caffeine is one that comes up a fair bit and people will usually sort of say, avoid caffeine as much as possible. And if people think about caffeine as a stimulant, it's the opposite of alcohol. Uh, yes, you definitely need to avoid that later in the day and especially in the evening. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that not only is caffeine in things like coffee and black tea, but it can be in a whole range of other different products that we consume. So for instance, I saw one person that uh, said, I don't drink coffee, I don't drink tea, but she drank like 12 large cups of green tea. So green tea has caffeine in it. Mm -hmm. um, there's also chocolate. Chocolate has 
uh, caffeine in it. So again, another client that I saw, he says, no, I don't drink coffee or tea or anything like that. But he had a whole block of dark chocolate after dinner, which was equivalent to something close to five espresso coffees. So people have to be a bit more aware of what sort of uh, caffeine they're putting into their system. The other thing about caffeine is that it has what's called a half-life of about say four to six hours. So for instance, if it's eight o'clock in the morning and you have your first cup of coffee with, that has about say a hundred milligrams of caffeine, if uh, six hours later is the half-life, it means you'll have 50 milligrams of caffeine six hours later. So you're talking, what's that, 2 p.m. You still got the 50 milligrams of that morning coffee in your system. So if you're having multiple coffees, like too many coffees, even in the morning and during the early part of the afternoon, by the time you go to bed, you're still going to have some caffeine floating in your system. So people have to be aware not to overdo it in the morning. Yeah. And I think an important thing is that when you're going through this first week of uh, not having alcohol, is that uh, you're going to wake up, sorry to say, but still feeling like shit because you're not getting that much sleep. So it is important to have something like coffee to help wake you up in the morning. Um, especially like say if you know that you're going to be driving to work in about an hour's time, um, caffeine basically has a peak of about 30 minutes later after consuming it. So if you have it half an hour before you're going to get into the car, that's a great time to sort of have it. Just be aware of how much you should have in the morning and try to avoid it in the evening. So that's caffeine, which is an important one. Uh, people have also addressed the fact that exercise is something that you should try to take up. <clears throat> so uh, the general rule is that if you have about an hour's worth um, regular exercise per day, it can be quite helpful. It doesn't mean um, it has to be uh, cardiovascular. It can be resistance training. could be anything, really. Um, if anything, try to avoid it in the evening because if you do any late-night sort of exercise, what that does is that it signals to our body clock, which is actually in the centre of our brain, that it's time to be awake. And that's the sort of thing that you don't want to do when you're going through this first week of uh, abstaining from alcohol. Um, some people might find that the quality of their sleep and the amount of sleep that they get in that first week is not enough. And they'll start to feel a bit sleepy in the afternoon if circumstances permit, like say if they're just sitting down watching TV and suddenly they're starting to feel like, oh, I could really shut my eyes here. But um, usually people hear that you cannot nap. You shouldn't nap whatsoever. Um, because that'll ruin your nighttime sleep. Well, it's really interesting because the science behind this doesn't necessarily prove that conclusively. Um, and certainly what's happened since is that uh, we've gone from uh, napping, which you might want to classify as something like a nap of 30 minutes or 60 minutes or more. But now we've got the power nap. So the power nap, uh, when we've done some research at the Flinders University that I'm from, uh, has shown that a power nap of about 10 minutes is the one that provides the greatest benefits in terms of your alertness and your functioning for about three hours after that nap. So people can entertain the idea of having something like a power nap if they want during this first week. And then the final one, which isn't a classic, um, say, uh, sleep hygiene technique, although it's starting to some come to the fore, is about technology use. So, you know, a lot of people sort of uh, are getting told remove all of your devices from your bedroom. Um, don't use any devices in the hour before bed. And I might actually put you on the spot here. Do you have any technological devices in your bedroom? So I don't know if this is right or wrong. So, but I will tell you that um, my phone is where I read. 
And so, cause it's right there and it's lit up. And so I'm not bothering anybody else. So I pretty much read, <laughs> I fall asleep reading every night. It used to be that my husband had to turn off the light after I was asleep and I just fall asleep with my phone reading. Like, and it's funny too, if you look at my screen time, like how many hours you are on certain things, it's like 78% you were in iBooks. <laughs> and then the rest of it is like very minimal, but um, that's what I use my phone for almost primarily aside from like texting. And so, yes, I do. I, I literally sleep with it. <laughs> there you go. Um, and I would say I was part of a, an expert panel back in 2010. And uh, when we uh, did the survey for Americans and their technology use and sleep uh, and the data came back in, it was 97% of Americans aged from 13 to 64 were using technology in the bedroom in the hour before bed. Now, we knew it was going to be high, but we didn't know it was going to be that high. And that was back in 2010. So that's when it dawned upon me that people are just going to be using this. Even if we recommend not to do it, they're still going to use it. Mm. But um, I've been doing research uh, in our sleep laboratory with teenagers, um, looking at technology use in sleep. So, for instance, we've been providing violent video games uh, to them in the hour before falling asleep. We've, we've provided bright screens on iPads in the hour before sleep to really see if we can stuff up their sleep. We're struggling, to be honest. We're, we're finding that uh, this isn't necessarily the big bad thing. Um, what we're boiling it down to, just to simplify it, is it's almost like you can categorize technological devices into two forms. One is interactive, and that is that you're interacting with the screen a fair bit. So yeah, sure, you can have your phone, but if you're sort of on the phone a fair bit, even something as simple like that, scrolling like that, that's an interactive technique. Um, if you look at passive devices and technically you know your phone is an interactive one but it can be a passive one that's exactly what you're doing you're actually reading so you're not really influencing what's on the screen too much sure the words will move but it's not as bad as if you're sort of touching and swiping a fair bit so there are some techniques that you can do that will be quite fine in terms of technology use so reading is a good one out of curiosity do you have a white background or do you have a black background black black background there you go. So that's one option that you can have. Listening to music is also another one. And then probably the controversial one is that sure, you can watch movies, TV series if you want. Those things are better than sort of internet surfing, video gaming type of uh, techniques. And so I guess what I'm suggesting to people is that when they're going through this wave of insomnia for that week that they're not using technology, uh, sorry, not uh, having alcohol, you can be on your devices, you can pass that time. Um, some research that we've conducted this year is we had this hypothesis that if you don't do that, you're going to be worse off. And so we surveyed about 700 teenagers and we found that they do use their technology to be able to pass the time until they fall asleep because a lot of teenagers fall asleep late. But the key thing is that they probably do that because when they don't, they start to have all these worrying thoughts that are going through their minds because when the lights are off and things are quiet, we have a lot of background thoughts and they can be about what I've got to do tomorrow, what happened bad that happened today. And so to distract ourselves from those thoughts, sure, read, watch Netflix, something like that. So it's not as harmful as um, what a lot of people say. So just to recap and hopefully just, because um, a lot of people sort of find this very hard to believe, even the sleep, other sleep scientists. But when we looked at uh, basically the sleep science, the data, for especially young people and teenagers. And we looked at all of these different studies and we got all of their data and we pulled it together, which is called a meta-analysis. And we looked at the relationship between television and sleep. It was close to zero. 
And what that means is you ch- no matter how much TV you watched before bed, it wasn't affecting sleep. We found some differences for internet use, but barely anything for TV. So hopefully that's something- And again, probably because you're interacting. I mean, theoretically, hypothesizing. So me as a study of one, um, I I have no sleep issues. I sleep like a baby. I like, it's never even, like I, I thankfully have very, very good, now that I don't drink. Now, when I was drinking, I had insane waking up at three in the morning, up for an hour, so much anxiety, like just so, so intense. But um, now that I don't drink, I, I just, yeah, I can sleep. No, you know, it's awesome. So my study of one, that's, that's so interesting. And I love, I just have to tell you, Michael, that like, oh, to look at something and say, people are going to do it anyway. So how can we reduce the harm? If there is even harm, which you seem to say there might not even be, let's explore that, right? Like who says, like, where did this come from? And, you know, logically, especially if parents want to get their kids off their screens or people, you know, we have this screens are so bad, technology is so bad, like we've got to do this stuff and, and people feel all this panic about it. And you've asked a different question, which is like the key to like everything is asking a better question. And your question is, okay, like number one, is it true? And number two, if it's true anyway, how can we at least provide things that are going to make it, make it better considering humans are humans. And I think that's just so beautiful because so often we go up against like, just do this differently. I mean, it's like every doctor on the planet, like, well, just drink less. Well, okay, like people are gonna drink. So how do we make it so that they can be mindful in their drinking? How do we make it so that they can be educated? How do, how do we make it so that they can make a conscious choice, right? And, and that's such a better question. So anyway, kudos to you, that's, that's just awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah. And it's been an interesting journey because, you know, when you say about questions, that's exactly what science is about. Like, you know, we look at what's been done, we develop a question. And even from my own experiences, I remember video gaming when I was younger and I was so alert and I was like, this definitely ha- has to happen. And, you know, I was, as you say, a case study of one. And then I go to study it with teenagers over and over again and I'm finding, hang on, this isn't working. So you start to ask a different question. And so this is uh, where we're at now. It's not necessarily um, the device too much. There's also characteristics about that individual person. They can go into, for instance, what's called a flow state. Like you just get in a zone. You can't really, you lose, um, what is it, distortion of time necessarily. So you're not aware of your surroundings. You just keep going, you procrastinate. And some people are more so than others on that. So there's individual characteristics, but as we've also learned, with video games, there's now AI that's programmed in there so that it will challenge people if they get bored, it'll ease off if they start getting frustrated so that they continue playing. So there are these sort of interactions that are occurring, but it's just great that we've been able to find that there's some enjoyable things that people can do when they go to bed that aren't gonna be harmful. Um, So I still haven't seen, I'm yet to do the study of seeing whether Netflix can actually help you sleep. So that's on the cards, but um, maybe people want to test that out and do their own little experiments at home, I reckon. That's awesome. That's so cool. I love it. Excellent. Um, So that's that's the sort of wrap up of sleep hygiene. Um, And then there's cognitive behavior therapy. So people might have heard about this. Cognitive means thoughts and behavior means, you know, your behaviors. And so cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia has been around since, say, the 1980s. It's a a package of different treatment techniques that's been very effective for insomnia. And as I'm alluding to, um, this first week of going without alcohol is like 
insomnia. So, you know, I was thinking, what sort of techniques can you do that might help you with this? So looking at the cognitive techniques, now uh, the classic cognitive technique for insomnia is really looking at what sort of thoughts are going through your mind when you're having trouble sleeping. And when you do that, then really have a looking at those and saying, are they true? How probable are they? And even if they are probable, how bad is the outcome? Um, and then once you start to realize it might not be 100% true, then you start to think of other sort of alternative thoughts that might be there. And you're looking for facts for, for both sides. Now, something like that takes quite a lot of time and a lot of guidance and supervision to do. Um, and it's not something you can do, say, necessarily in one week. So it's not necessarily a great technique for when people are trying to abstain from alcohol over that first week. But there are some other techniques um, that can be done. One simple one, I think you're also alluding to it uh, in terms of being quite mindful, is something like a body scan. So a body scan technique, you can simply uh, um, download these from the internet. There's a number of them that are free. Uh, again, we did a study two years ago where we um, were trying to get teenagers to either listen to this body scan technique when they were trying to fall asleep uh, versus a group of teenagers that weren't trying to do it. And uh, we found that those teenagers that had trouble sleeping, so they took longer than 30 minutes to fall asleep on a regular basis. After one week of practicing this, their uh, time taken to fall asleep really came down very quickly. So if you do something like this around bedtime, what it's doing is it's not only relaxing your body, it's getting you to focus on your breath. But uh, some of these different body scans will tell you, okay, if your thoughts are drifting off about what you've got to do at work tomorrow, bring it back to where you are now in the bed, where your head is on the pillow, how relaxing things are. And I think that's really the cognitive element that can be quite useful in that first week when you're abstaining from alcohol. So that's really the cognitive one. And then uh, some of the behavioral techniques can be quite useful as well when it comes to insomnia. And I'm alluding to one type of technique, which is called sleep restriction therapy. Have you heard of that? No. Yeah. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but it's been around since 1987. Um, the premise is that it's based upon a physiological process that we have about sleep, which is sleep pressures. The idea, again, if you wake up, you start to build up sleep pressure. The longer you're awake, the more sleepy you get. And so this is a process that's naturally happening in that first week because we're going without alcohol. The brain starts to go into hyperarousal state, so we start to really fall asleep later. But people should really go with it. They're doing a sort of a natural form of sleep restriction therapy. All they've got to do is just be very mindful about what they've got to do the next day during those first three to four days. Like if you are operating heavy machinery, if you're a surgeon, please don't do it around this sort of time or a dentist. Um, if you're an accountant, go for it. Just be extra careful with your numbers. Um, so as long as you're careful about what you've got to do the next day, um, just pretty much go with the flow. But it's something that can, you can do in the longer term is to realize that um, some people go, I need to get as much sleep as possible. I need to go to bed as early as possible so I can grab as much sleep as possible. What ends up happening is that they're spending more time awake in bed. Mm. So everyone has an individual need for sleep, a certain amount of hours on average that they get. And so something like sleep restriction therapy is a process of just trying to do trial and error and find out where your ideal bedtimes are until you're falling asleep pretty quick. You're not waking up too much during the night and then you're able to wake up and go about your day. You don't have to optimally function. You just have to be okay. So that's probably a nice sort of adaptation of a behavioral therapy that people can sort of almost naturally do in that first week of abstaining from alcohol. So that's really the summation of the cognitive behavior therapy that they can do. That's, that's great. And it's interesting because um, 
So a few, a, a few questions for you. First of all, do you have, you said it was kind of really individual, but is there kind of a, a guideline for how much sleep people should really be trying to get a night? Not obviously not during this first week because we want to be peaceful about it and let it go and just allow that that's even a therapeutic technique and there's benefits and so not, not fight it, but just in general, once, once people have stabled out. Yeah, certainly. So um, over in the States, there's the National Sleep Foundation. So people can Google that. In fact, if they Google National Sleep Foundation sleep recommendations, and if they do this search, either just in plain old Google or Google images, uh, what they'll eventually get to is a graph that will show different uh, stages of development. So obviously a lot of people are going to look at adult uh, range and what it does is provide exactly that. It has a recommendation for this sort of at many hours is the amount of sleep that you should be trying to get. So something like say between seven to nine hours and I like that concept. It's, it's not this whole you should get eight hours sleep. There's this magic number. There's a range and that really respects the fact that people have different needs of sleep. And the other nice thing about it is that they respect that some people can need about nine to ten and some maybe even six to seven believe it or not. So if people want to look at that, they can sort of look at that. But it's always uh, an answer that we provide to people to say, think about your own individual need. As much as someone else, your neighbour might be saying that they get nine hours of sleep. If you get seven hours of sleep, if you're functioning quite fine, not feeling sleepy, you're not getting the consequences, then maybe you've hit the magic mark for you. No, that's awesome. That's great. Um, and then my... My second question about along those lines, and this is just sort of a personal thing, but we returned, my husband and I, from like a six-day conference where it was purposefully to do, I think, I hadn't heard the term before, but I think there was like a sleep deprivation therapy in order to like really ingrain the teachings to some degree because there was intentionally very little sleep. It went very late at night, started relatively early in the morning, and, and by day two or three, we did notice we were more open to the suggestion, which I think was the whole point. Um, but we also noticed like there was some level of it feeling good too, like just kind of feeling so tired that I felt really peaceful and like things didn't really matter. And I just kind of had this like kind of flowy and I, we were telling, we returned last night, we were at the airport and we both knew we had probably gotten, I don't know, maybe 15 hours of sleep for the last, I don't know, five days or something. It was, it was very little sleep. And we were both like, but we feel really surprisingly good. Like how, how, why is that? How does that yeah. work? It certainly isn't necessarily something that would be common. So we'd probably have to say that because some people are okay. going, wow, that's fantastic. I can fit so much in my day if I'd be able to do that. And I, you know, I get this buzz, um, but it can happen. And I think uh, the interesting thing sometimes is that um, it can happen when people are doing that sleep restriction therapy. Um, here they are trying to get, you know, 10 hours of sleep because they're spending 10 hours of time in bed. Then they go to do something like sleep restriction therapy and they might even start off saying, okay, well, on average, I'm getting probably six hours of broken sleep. I'll go to bed at midnight and wake up at six. And for the first week, they might have, like you said, one of those nights and they go, wow, I've got six hours sleep. And I thought I'd be terrible, but I actually felt really good. Um, I don't think we've really ascertained exactly what that is. Um, whether it's motivation from the body to just, you know, keep going with something that might be good for them. But uh, yeah, can't answer that specifically. I don't think there's any yeah. exact science for that. It was just so ironic that we're talking that we, we had that conversation yesterday and I was like, you know, it is maybe, you know, I, I really like the idea of like this, this is going to happen. So let's look at it as, as a positive thing. Let's look at it as a benefit. Let's realize that it will pass. Let's not get stuck 
kind of energetically with the idea that like, oh, something's wrong and so intense. And so it's just beautiful. It's awesome. That's it. Yeah, cool. Um, did you have any other questions before I go on? Oh, no, continue, carry on. Excellent. Well, um, I guess that summates the stuff that uh, we do usually in um, therapy when we're seeing people with insomnia that come to see us. Um, and something that uh, I would often get asked when I'm doing, say, school talks, high school talks, you know, here I am talking about their body clocks and how their biology is uh, meaning that they're needing to fall asleep later and so forth. And then often from kids, I'll get these questions about, I had this dream the other night, blah, 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 blah. What does it mean? And, and even though we do this sleep science, we don't usually look at dreams. We don't do dream interpretation or anything like that. But um, it's been fascinating when looking at some of the research that is coming out in the dreaming area. And a lot of people that uh, do stop drinking alcohol do report a lot of dreams. I mean, we understand that. So say, for instance, when I used to work with Vietnam vets, they, would, um, they, they pretty much had learned to use alcohol to sleep. Um, they would come off the helicopters, for instance, having undergone a horrific battle, and they were pretty much pointed towards uh, like some beer and say, that's yours, all of that there is yours. That, that was their therapy, so to speak. And unfortunately, that was something that they just continued to do for quite a long time. And what it meant was that uh, they would be using alcohol to help them fall asleep, but it was also restricting the amount of REM sleep or dreaming sleep that they would have. And then so when they try to go make a change, then suddenly they would get this, what we call REM rebound, and they would have these horrific nightmares, these flashbacks. And of mm. course, that's then like, oh, well, geez, I, I can't, you know, handle that again. I've got to have alcohol to help me sleep. So a similar thing, but I guess not as strong as that can happen to people when they're trying to make a change to their drinking. And they'll start to get these whole host of different dreams coming through. And even some of these dreams can be about drinking. And um, there was a study that uh, I uh, looked at uh, recently and made a bit of a parallel with, uh, I guess, this process when you're stopping drinking alcohol. And the study was really fascinating because it was looking at women who just went through a divorce. And what it was doing is it was measuring their sleep at night, waking, up, waking them up during REM sleep. And one thing that was coming out was a number of women were depressed, but they were also having dreams about their ex-partner. And what this study did that was really interesting is that a year later when they followed these women up, the women that dreamt more about the ex-partner at that early stage of the divorce and separation, those ones that had more dreams about the partner were less depressed one year later. And you wouldn't wow. expect that. And so this, it's this concept that, uh, that is coming through is that dreams are a way to help process our emotions. So I guess what I want to sort of, you know, inform your audience about is that uh, as much as they could wake up and have these dreams about, you know, oh, I had these dreams, I was searching for alcohol, I located alcohol, I started drinking alcohol, it's the opposite of what I want to do during the day and they wake up with this rotten feeling. If we look at um, them trying to sort of divorce that relationship with alcohol, that alcohol or the bottle is basically like in this other study, their ex-partner what could possibly happen is try to perceive it in a different way. If you understand that this might be a way to process these emotions and it might actually help you along the way, process your emotions and be an encouraging natural therapy, overnight therapy for people to help them abstain from alcohol and get to a better balance with their emotions. Oh yeah. 
That's so good. I um I did dream a lot about and even about drinking, but I remember that. So I'm I'm really relating to that. That's that's great. Thank you. Yeah. And then finally, um, people have to understand, I guess, my background is a sleep psychologist and researcher. Um, I'm, I can't prescribe medication, but there's going to be some circumstances where people probably uh, want to do some of this uh, separation from alcohol, but can uh, consult with their doctor first. Um, and because doctors can often come from a medical background, they've been educated in what medications can um, help. Um, people could be more aware of the different types of medications that they might be placed upon. So say, for instance, temazepam is a common uh, sleeping medication, and hopefully they can have some guidance from their doctor about uh, maybe taking temazepam in the short term to sort of ease that pain if they feel like they need that extra bit of help uh, on top of these psychological techniques. Um, I think melatonin comes up a fair bit, and people don't quite understand melatonin. Melatonin is really something that helps us change the timing of our body clock. So say for instance, when we work with teenagers, they fall asleep after midnight, but they'll also want to sleep in until midday. Um, so we use melatonin to really trick the body clock to bring the timing of their sleep earlier so they're in a better sort of place to be able to fall asleep earlier on school night and wake up in time for school. It's not necessarily used as a way similar to temazepam to really make people drowsy. Um, it does have that effect on children, say under 10 years of age, but not necessarily for adults. What it can do sometimes though, is it can amplify the effects of other sleeping medications. Um, so if someone is consulting with their doctor and they are taking melatonin and the doctor is prescribing something like temazepam, they certainly want to let their doctor know that they've also got melatonin because those two things can interact. Um, and likewise, you know, we know that alcohol can be related to depression and anxiety, and there are some medications, uh, anti-anxiety medications and antidepressants that can make people feel sleepy as well. So maybe that might be a way to sort of hit two birds with one stone, but definitely consult with your doctor about this extra sort of help. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And um, for the melatonin specifically, like, do people take it at what point before they fall asleep or... It depends what you want to do. So say, for instance, with teenagers, when we're trying to change the timing of their body clock. So say, for instance, you know, some of the teenagers that we see will be falling asleep at four o'clock in the morning and they get up at seven o'clock in the morning to go to school. So the usual rule of thumb is that they will um, need to take the melatonin on the first night, three hours before they usually fall asleep. So if they're falling asleep at 4 a.m., they take it at 1 a.m. And then the idea is that they take it earlier each night. So they're basically dragging the sleep earlier by doing that. Um, so it's a case where it's not the same time each night. It's changing every single night to try to really pull sleep earlier so they can fall asleep earlier and have enough sleep before they go to school. Oh, that's awesome. That's so helpful. That's great. Excellent. So that's probably the summary of, um, you know, what happens to us over that first week. And these techniques, you know, they can be used in the long term as well. Um, and I think your description exactly that, you know, you sleep better now is something that I've heard from a lot of people. It's just trying to get through that first week when people might have a few shitty nights and then there's going, oh no, you know, this means I've got to have alcohol and they get stuck in this vicious cycle. So hopefully these techniques help people to push through that first week, ride that wave of arousal and, you know, get better sleep in the long term. That's amazing. And thank you so much again. I mean, what I loved about this is it was so science-based and so incredibly practical. And, and that's just huge. You know, there's, there's theory, which is great to learn to know. And then there's like 
here's what to do about it, which is where this, this conversation led us, which was beautiful and amazing. So um, I know you have a special offer for, for where people can find out more and even dive deeper on this. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yep. Um, so we've got a website. Uh, it's called Wink. So um, the actual website is winksleep.online. So that's winksleep, one word, dot online. Um, so you can go there, visit our website. Um, we're building up a whole host of different resources, eBooks. Uh, we do workshops as well online. And uh, we try to update people with the science behind some of this. So for instance, we've got a blog on there that talks about the blue light from screens because everyone's heard, you know, the blue light from screens, that's going to affect your sleep. Well, guess what? That's not necessarily the case. So people can have a read of that. Um, and on there, we also have an ebook about sleep and alcohol. So it's going into depth. It's got some reading resources there as well. If people want to explore this area more, um, it's usually $49, but uh, for your viewers, if they uh, type in a code, the code is naked mind sleep, all one word, naked mind sleep, capital letters. If they uh, apply that code, then um, they'll get a discount and it'll be $19. Um, and we'll keep that going for the next month. I'm glad I made it that and not sleep naked mind. I thought you'd be careful about that code. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Excellent. And thanks for yours as well. Did you miss this Naked Mind Live? Do you maybe have a little bit of FOMO? But don't worry, I've got you covered. In fact, I had the entire event professionally recorded and it's available digitally. Transformation in your living room. Yep, that is what it's all about. You can grab your digital ticket at thisnakedmind.com forward slash digital ticket. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.